Hi, my name is Evan. I use he, him pronouns. My name is Ian. I use they, them pronouns. My name is Jess. I use she, her pronouns. And my name is M, and I also use they, them pronouns. And this is If The Shoe Fits, a podcast about high school. <laughs> in the 50s. In the 50s, or maybe in the early 2000s. Mid-2000s. <laughs> Mid-2000s. We're talking about Greece today. But first, uh, we have two guests with us, Jess and M. Can you say a little bit about yourselves? Sure. So I went to high school with Evan. Uh, we met in ninth grade English class. It was basically around Romeo and Juliet, actually. We had to read it out loud as a class, and we were cast as Romeo and Juliet, respectively. Just on the first day, I should say. I think I think it was different oh. goals, different days. On the first day, yes. So Evan sat in front of me in English class and turned around and looked at the book I was reading and it was asking me about it. And I, as a very shy early teenager, uh, thought that that was very strange. And we subsequently became friends. <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out in the end. Uh, I am Jess's partner and... Evan and I are friends, and Ian and I are friends, and I'm very excited to be here. Everybody's friends. Everybody's friends. Friends all around. Friends Friends all around. around. Jess, what did you think of Romeo and Juliet when we read it in the ninth grade? I just remember thinking how scandalous it was as a, what, 14-year-old? Is that how old we were in high school? Oh, God. I had never really been exposed to so many dirty jokes in a... formal piece of literature Mm -hmm. and I just remember being shocked by the content and I went to visit one of my uncles and told him this and he asked me why he asked me why I was so surprised and so shocked by it and I was like it's just so explicit and he's like what's wrong with that and I think that was one of the first times that I was like oh maybe it's okay for there to be this kind of content in the material that I read I love the idea that like Romeo and Juliet could be a an eye-opening experience in terms of like a worldview, yeah. especially not, especially in that way, which feels like not the way that, that people think about Romeo and Juliet um, broadening their, their minds. It was interesting because I remember every class being like, they said what? And I know lots of people in our class giggled at different jokes. And I think it was Miss Chappelle was our teacher. She oh kind of smiled and was like, all right, settle down. I think I'm jealous that y'all had like a class that, was like into it and like laughing at the jokes my class could give like two shits about it i was the only one that was like really invested in it i, I don't know that i can say that the whole class was equally invested right i think it was mostly just the dirty jokes that they thought was funny and em what do you think about the romeo and juliet story when did you come to it i also came to it in high school uh we read it in class and then i was also in a uh, parody play in middle school which i did not realize at the time was specifically romeo and juliet but it was called romeo and winifred and it made fun of all of the shakespeare plays and then when i got to high school and i read romeo and juliet i then understood all of the jokes (laughs) i previously missed and i really liked it i was looking for my romeo and instead became romeo and found juliet Mm-hmm. Aww. Aww. that worked out in the end what year did you like what grade did you read Romeo and Juliet I think it was I think it was ninth grade what is with ninth, ninth grade, grade being the year 
Or maybe it was, <laughs> it might have been, I don't remember exactly which grade it was, but it was Miss Rainville, who is now Mrs. Masana, and <laughs> is still my favorite teacher ever, and actively encouraged dick jokes in her class. Not actively, I can't say actively, but was not at all surprised that we made them, and accidentally let a few slip on her own and that was that was my favorite class she was my favorite teacher we're friends on facebook now well shout outs to mrs chappelle and mrs masana for sure yes right shout out to all the ninth grade teachers (laughs) it's exciting to have jess you here for the what is the high school spectacular episode because we're doing (laughs) greece and high school musical a double feature a double feature should we talk about greece that Greece is the word. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I've heard. Uh, When was the last time you guys watched Greece before this? Oh, it was a very long time ago. I don't know if I've watched it since the first time that I saw it. But the first time I saw it was with my parents. They showed it to me and my sister when I was probably, I don't know, 10 or 12, something along that lines. At the end of the movie, they talked about how we were like, oh, this was good. And they talked about how it came out when they were in their teens. And it was such a scandalous movie. I think my mom said that her parents wouldn't let her watch it because it talked about such a scandalous and like provocative relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And it was really interesting to understand how film had changed from when they were kids and what was considered normal because we watched it and it depicted something that we had seen before in other movies but for them it was this new take on high school relationships the scandalous relationship being the like rizzo kanicki relationship i think the implication of teen pregnancy i think all of it just all Mm -hmm. of the allusions to sex Mm -hmm. and um yeah, the idea that she could have gotten pregnant in high school. And I don't know if maybe some of it had to do with all of the like drinking and smoking. I'm not sure if those were things that were normalized in cinema at that time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just there were a lot of sexual jokes. And sometimes the way that the guys would uh, allude to sexual encounters, you know, mm-hmm. I think that was the content that made their parents go, this is a bad movie for you to watch. Right. It's going to ruin the youth. Poison your minds. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Melt your brains. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Now, I'm not a teenager, but is like horny teen movie a genre that still exists? Yes. Well. Now, though, I mean, I know when we were kids. Not not so much. I think like the last of the horny teen films were like the mid 2000s. Mm hmm. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a teenager anymore, so I can't. Yeah. I don't know what's popular with the teens now, but yeah. like, I think I think that trend is kind of that ship has sailed for all of us. I think honestly, possibly Twilight kind of ruined it. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe I, I think it, because of that new genre of like my 
monster boyfriend right. type thing. I think that's what it just transferred to. Are those not horny teenager movies set in a different context? The paranormal boyfriend movies are, I mean, I can't speak for all of them, but I, I mean, I think that like a lot of them land in this, like not sexless, but it's a gray area, right? Desexualized certainly mm. to a degree. Like the characters are, are like sexually attracted to each other clearly, but they're never going to act on it. It's kind of the, vibe. and they're all hot. Right. Gotcha. It's not the focus of the movie. Whereas yeah. this movie and Grease 2 to a far greater extent is like about sex. Our Romeo and Juliet. Danny and Sandy. Danny and Sandy. I got to say real quick before we get into the, the whether or not this is a Romeo and Juliet question. I probably rewatched this movie the last time that I saw it was in college. Um, so it's been it's been a while, but it's been shorter than for some of you. And, but I've seen it on stage like three times, probably different productions. But seeing it on film again, I was like, this is a good movie. Like, I forgot how good, like, it's a well-made movie. The musical sequences are filmed really well. But, you know, I, I think that, like, there's a lot of, like, feminist critique of Greece uh, that overshadows that it's, like, a, a good time. Yeah, no, I, when watching it, I was like, oh, because it has also been a very long time. I think the last time I watched it, it was when Freeform was called ABC Family. Yes. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it used to play on that channel all the time and be like a three-hour block of ABC Family's time with the commercials and everything. Typically like, on like right. a Monday afternoon right after a Harry Potter weekend. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was always Harry Potter weekend, then Grease on a Monday night <laughs> from 8 yeah. to 11. And so like that was like the last time that I'd like watch it like full through because like I think I fell into the thing of like, oh, Greece is not really that good. It's, it's Greece, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But rewatching it, I was like, oh, no, this is this is a good film. This is yeah. fun. I honestly think it's one of the best musical movies because it's just a lot of fun. It may not be faithful to the original stage production, but it's a great musical film. Did the stage production come first before yes. the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There's an original stage version, which was done in Chicago and set in Chicago with a lot of like local references. And then that was sort of cleaned up and, and universalized, quote unquote, for Broadway. John Travolta was in it on Broadway, I believe. Yes. As Kanicki. Three of the cast members of the movie did the show on Broadway at some point. Uh-huh. Uh, John Travolta played both Putsy and Kanicki at one point. Mm-hmm. The actor that played Kanicki, Jeff Conway, was a former Danny. <laughs> And then the actress that played Jan, Jamie Donnelly, just always played Jan. Amazing. I mean, she does it so well. Yes. <laughs> the Jan. We love Jan. We love Jan. Everybody in the movie who is not the focus of whatever scene they're in is, is very interesting. Like, there's a lot of, like, people <laughs> just doing stuff in the background of scenes in a way that's hilarious. We noticed that, especially uh, at the drive-in, watching the the sequence behind Danny as he's singing about how sad he is that yes. left him. Yes. For- when that scene started, I turned to Ian and it was like, you know, the star of this scene is the dancing hot dog, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love how that sequence ends with a hot dog going into a bun. When he's talking about loving Sandy. Yep. yep. It's subtle, but it's subtle. <laughs> yeah. what- subtle with a capital B. <laughs> yes. What did you guys make of Grease up on the rewatch again? I actually really enjoyed it. And I feel like this time around as an adult with uh, more life experience, I understand some of the implications and the jokes more than I did maybe when I was a young teen. There were definitely things that went over my head 
then that now I, you know, I got the punchline or I got the reference, um, even certain song lyrics that <laughs> surprised me. Grease, uh, Grease Lightning, which we had to look up to ensure that they were actually saying girls will cream for Grease Lightning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was one that I definitely wouldn't have caught. I think when I was a kid, I thought they said scream. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Th- there are alternate lyrics for that song. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there is certainly like on stage, they change a lot of the lyrics in some versions. Or if you do it in the high school, the lyrics will be different. I mean, the thing is like, if you did that song and you don't have a car on stage that you're pointing at a lot, it's clearly a song about sex. Yeah. Primarily. I think they even like change the lyrics for the, when they aired on like TV, like ABC family. And so oh, really like, yeah. recorded it. Maybe yeah. that's why I thought they said scream yeah. then, but or no, rewatching like- it last night. I was like, Oh wow. This is a much more explicit song than I knew when I was 12 years old. And I, and I also just remember that the shop teacher is like in the number. <laughs> She's like, into it with them <laughs> yeah although she disappears for the like fantasy sequence which i think is probably for the best but replaced with even better background dancers who are just bopping yeah <laughs> this is a great film to watch the background people in like it's just so great it really is <laughs> yes it's a really good movie where you can watch it a hundred times and still notice new things. Totally. Yeah. There were sequences where I'm like, I have to go back and watch that ensemble member. Now I have to go back and watch that ensemble member because everyone is doing something interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. It also just looks so much fun. Like I'm a documentary whore. So like, I'm like, is there a documentary about how they made this film? Like, I just want to like, cause it seems like so much fun. Like everybody seems like they're having the best time making this film. And it yeah. definitely comes across when you're watching it. Yeah, even more than like Mamma Mia, which is famous for for them all seeming like they're just a little bit drunk and just like having a good time. Well, I think they were. <laughs> I mean, totally. But like this especially just seems like there was some free reign given to people to to do whatever a little bit. I mean, because that's the thing about this movie is that like they did not know they were making a, like a classic. They just thought they were going to make a silly movie to be popular for teens with teens for a summer and then, you know, disappear. So they're like, it, it doesn't matter was sort of the vibe when they were making it. We can have the car fly away at the end. Why not? Yeah. One thing that before, especially before we go into talking about Romeo and Juliet, and maybe this, maybe this might like come up in our mm-hmm. talk about Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Is the age of the actors. Oh, yes. yes. I don't mind this so much. I think it's a convention, you know, some of them are clearly like, like that's a father of two. <laughs> John Travolta has a five o'clock shadow at all times, <laughs> which I don't know a single high school senior that could pull that off maybe maybe the high school seniors in my high school were like particularly hairless but (laughs) that was that was the most striking thing of this this man is significantly older than an actual 17 year old boy yeah i did the math of the age range of our leads Mm -hmm. so the two youngest are 22 that's marty and putsy Okay. And then our two oldest are Rizzo and Sonny at 32. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's, uh, what are Olivia Newton and, and John? Olivia Newton John was 29. Uh huh. John Travolta is 24. Oh, wow. Wow. So opposite than what usually the casting age is for yeah. men and women. But sort of similar to the age range between the two characters in Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. If the wrong way. I think despite the cast clearly being older than the intended age of the characters, they did a decent job of 
acting the age of the characters, acting like they were in high school and kind of immature and, you know, a little bit silly and not super world aware, you know? I think there's something that this movie gets right about the, the vibe of being a teenager, that they're both like, think they're very cool and doing these like insane adult activities like drag racing, <laughs> but they're also right. like goofing off in the hallway, you know, like, like the, I think it gets like the bad vibe of being a teenager, right? That they're, they're both like trying to grow up and, and not grown up at all. <laughs> I feel also that a lot of the time that um, high schoolers are cast as high schoolers, it's kind of a hit or miss because some of them don't have the reflection period mm-hmm. of <laughs> older actors of this is how it was in high school. And this is how other people were in high school, whereas they are in high school. So they don't, they're just, they're unable to act anything other than themselves to an extent. Mm-hmm. But however, sometimes that is not the case. Plus, sometimes you're just like, that's a baby. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a child. That's a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sort of the gold standard is like a Gatton Matarazzo who just looks a lot younger than he is. So he has like the acting chops to play a teen and also he looks like a teen and no one's going to be like this kid is a that's an adult you know <laughs> right right so is it a romeo and juliet yeah we were having this debate last night after we watched it because i think it starts off like a romeo and juliet mm-hmm. well, and they I think, history, which is not super r and j i think that it in order for it to be a romeo and juliet you have to consider some metaphorical aspects of the movie right mm-hmm. so what are the criteria for something being uh, Romeo and Juliet to you guys? I mean, that is the big question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about these two movies is that when we started the season, we were saying that it's a story about two people who are from different communities who are in love and whose communities do not want them to be in love. Right. right? That, that, like, that like the part of it that makes these two movies, in my mind, fit the trope is that the pink ladies don't really want them to end up together or are indifferent to it. And the T-birds don't want Danny to end up with Sandy, that there's the social pressure on both sides, that their love is forbidden in some way uh, yeah. by their, by the two different worlds that they're from. But then when we saw things like Titanic, we were like, maybe it's a story about people who are in love recklessly and despite society. And, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's a lot of question about what, the, what it is. Yeah. When we were talking about it, I think that a Romeo and Juliet has to have some sense of star-crossed lovers, right? Like you were talking with the pink ladies and the T-birds kind of being at odds a bit. And then really, I mean, the key aspect of the ending of a Romeo and Juliet is that they both die in the end for little to no reason. And obviously they don't die in the end of this one. And so when we were thinking about well, then does it still fit the Romeo and Juliet trope? Then we were talking about some like metaphorical deaths, um, like their death to ego sort of thing, where Danny takes steps to be a stronger, better guy for Sandy uh, by going out and joining the track team and working on himself and kind of getting over his feelings of, I need to look a certain way in front of my friends and then Sandy's kind of death to her innocence a little bit where she, you know, embraces her like bad girl side a little bit to 
impress Danny, uh, and they kind of end up compromising in the end. And so their stereotypes that they both kind of put themselves into and grounded their personalities in before they've let that go. So that kind of death to their former self would fit that aspect of the Romeo and Juliet story. That's a very interesting lens to view it from. Well, and, uh, you know, the, like, like the, the Danny and the Sandy from the beginning of the story have to die is interesting. Um, they have to become new people is, right. is an interesting lens to view it from. You know, I think we go back and forth on this. But I think that the one of the things that has happened at the end of Romeo and Juliet is that whatever the feud is has to end. And it's sort of hard to pick out what the feud is, right? Like the T-Birds and the Pink Ladies are not at war in any sense. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, sort of the feud is this, like, idea of of having these defined social roles that um, the T-Birds are rough around the edges and they drive, the, you know, driving fast cars and so on. And that the pink ladies are also rough around the edges and they have to, that's the kind of girl that a T-Bird should be with is a pink lady and so on. That they have, that they belong to these groups and identify with them so strongly. I mean, the thing that's threatening that in Greece is that Sandy is so clean cut and Danny is embarrassed to be seen with her because he thinks that it says something about him that he is dating someone that he could be dating someone who is not rough around the edges like him. And then right at the end of the movie, he becomes a, a cleaner cut uh, version of himself and she becomes yeah. a little edgier and, and they meet in the middle, I guess. Uh, Cause he, he letters and track his regular letterman jacket at the end of the movie, which he takes off for the final number. So they can both be, in black. Jacket is a strong word. That's a sweater. It's like a cardigan. Yeah, it's it's a definitely cardigan. a cardigan. Yeah. Um, I think that part of the feud uh, between the pink ladies and the T-Birds is that the pink ladies command respect and the T-Birds don't necessarily respect them in the way that they want. Kaneki kind of pushes Rizzo around where he doesn't really respect her. He just wants to fool around and then also fool around with other people. And she also wants to fool around, but she also... Uh, especially in her number, talks about how she does want someone to respect her and love her. And at the end, not only do you have, is it Putsy and Jan kind of get together? Yeah. And you have Sandy and Danny getting together. And then you also have Kaniki and Rizzo getting together. And, and he, Kaniki, literally says, I can make an ominous woman out of you. And they form a true relationship. And the end of the feud is the two sides getting together and finding mutual respect for each other. Yeah. I mean, I think that like on the surface, you could say, you know, what is the Rizzo Kaniki relationship doing in this story? Why is this subplot happening? But mm-hmm. I, I think you bring up a good point, which is that it is thematically related to this same idea that, that these two people need to find a way to respect each other and to, to be together, despite how they think they should be in this world that they're in. They're part of the feud, I guess. And well, and, and also, like, I think that, like, the bitterness between Rizzo and Kaniki is driving what there is of the feud, that both, like, Rizzo is taking out her anger about the Kaniki situation by causing problems in Sandy's life. And uh, Kaniki is being dismissive of the idea of, like, going steady with somebody in uh, Danny's life. Yeah. I think in this storyline, there's less of a feud and more of a palpable tension between mm-hmm. the two groups. Yes. It's not like they're fighting necessarily. It's just that they're somewhat at odds with what they want from the others. There's a tension in that sense rather than an outright feud between them. Yeah. 
No, I definitely agree with that. I, I don't think there's so much of a feud as much as there is that just tension between them and everybody just needs to talk it out. Talk their feelings. Then we wouldn't have a movie, right? Right. That's true. And I, I was surprised how many of the the like character relationships you can assign. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, and even down to like there being a, a pretty clear Tybalt and Mercutio, even though they're fated to be mated instead of fated to kill each other. Um, right. Frenchie has a pretty clear nurse character, and even a Paris uh, in uh, Sandy's himbo boyfriend, Tom. Par- Paris Light, I will say. Oh, yes. yeah. He didn't do much fighting for her. But... No, it's just an a ineffectual romantic rival. Yeah. The most he does is mouth, hi, how are you? <laughs> Gives her money from the jukebox. Right. And yeah. then stares at them when yeah. Sandy runs to Danny after he falls. That's about right. it. Yeah, right. Although in the background, as the T-Birds are talking and Danny is looking at Sandy and Tom, they're sharing <laughs> a milkshake and she's looking at him and Tom is looking at Sandy with just giant hard eyes. Mm-hmm. As he's eating his milkshake with his Tom deserved better. I mean, if we I mean Tom deserved better, but if we saw his dancing at the at the dance when he was trying to hand jive, he's a pretty bad dancer. Oh, so really? I think Sandy uh, I think Sandy made the right call. I, yeah. I expressed this to you when we were watching it, but I think it's hilarious that the movie does not even try to explain why Danny's a good dancer. It's just like he's cool. Of course he's a good dancer. Cool guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> Of course, he's one of the best dancers at Rydell, even though he's like terrible at track. And like, like the vibe we get from his scene with Sid Caesar, who's in this movie, is like, this guy just thinks he's good at everything, despite the fact that he hasn't ever put in any effort. And then you, you like get to the dance, and you're like, oh, except that he's like a terrific dancer. <laughs> well, I mean, this, I think this is in the musical, but I, the main reason why this happens in the movie is because literally the year before, John Travolta was in Saturday Night Fever. Oh, totally. Yeah. So they were like, we got to show him dancing. We yeah. got to dance. How about the uh, allusion to a balcony scene at the sleepover? Oh, now, uh, I didn't even think about that. I know you guys love a balcony scene and kind of with the scenes. Started and we were like, oh, this is the balcony scene. And then it just stopped. And so we were like, maybe it's only half a balcony scene. They literally pull up and I think it's Putsy that kind of jumps up in the car and goes, Sandy, Sandy, wherefore art thou Sandy? Or is it yes. Putsy? It's, it might Putsy. Be. it's Putsy. Yeah. Putsy jumps out and says, Sandy, wherefore art thou Sandy? And I told Jess to pause the movie and I said, this is our balcony scene. <laughs> and then it completely cuts off right after that where Rizzo gets out of the car or gets out of the house. Yeah. And that's, that's it. That's the end of it. Rizzo's like, I'm Juliet actually. Yes. Yes. Well, I would, I would say that that is half of the balcony scene. I think the other half comes before that with summer loving, talking about their love, talking about like their time together. Sandy's Mm -hmm. on the ground at the cafeteria. Uh Uh-huh. Danny's up in the bleachers in a balcony mm. type area. This is a stretch. Yeah, but okay. I'm going to stretch it. But there's that big zoom out where suddenly Sandy is, has a giant head and he's just like a little guy in the background. <laughs> um, interesting because like the, if we're going by the the beats of the Romeo and Juliet story, which is like, there's fighting and then there's a party and they meet and then the balcony scene and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the meet cute, the party uh, is the prologue of the movie in some ways. Yeah. Right. Like mm-hmm. 
them re-meeting at high school. And like in some ways, the balcony scene would be the first time that they could speak frankly together. Like it's the jukebox scene, you know, maybe? Maybe. When he apologizes. Okay. Maybe the balcony scene is that opening beach scene then. Maybe. But, I mean, it's it's the most frank they're able to be until the end of the movie, certainly. Do we even get like, other than like a couple of scenes where they're fighting, do we even get like scenes where they're actually like in love in a couple until like other than the beginning and the end? This is the thing we were talking about later is that somehow you believe that they're in love and that they have this incredible connection, even though we, we really almost never see it on screen at the very beginning at the beach, they like are cute together. And then there's been the rest of the movie, like not being able to communicate right. until, the, until the very end, but you believe it. I mean, they have enough chemistry as actors maybe, or something about it. I'm like, these two people would be good together if they ever could get together. Yeah. We're almost relying on the opening sequence where they're at the beach together just trusting in that relationship that they depict for all of what a minute and a half Mm -hmm. to be the foundation for their love but i mean that's very romeo and juliet in some ways because they know each other for how long before they get married it's not a very long time and we have to just assume that their love is so strong that it's what led them to run away together and ultimately kill themselves at the thought of not being able to be together. And to jump off of that, it's in their, uh, especially Danny and Sandy, it's when they're either singing about their love for each other or Sandy is talking about how great of a guy Danny was to, Mm -hmm. you know, Frenchie or like the rest of the girls. Those are the only moments that we get like kind of the hint of their love story in a way. And that's very similar to kind of the play where Romeo's talking to the friar or Juliet is talking to the nurse. Yeah. Right. And I saw someone do like a word map of Romeo and Juliet showing the like the character relationships and uh, and the lines were like thicker or thinner based on how many lines of dialogue they exchange. And Juliet <laughs> says more words to the nurse than she ever says to Romeo. I mean, they Romeo and Juliet have like four scenes together, maybe party, balcony, wedding, and morning after, right? Yeah. I and mean, then four scenes, right? Yeah. So. And if I'm going... If we're going to do that math, Danny mm-hmm. and Sandy only had prologue, mm-hmm. their meet at the pep rally, the jukebox. They got a bunch of little short scenes. Their date, mm-hmm. the prom, right? Their date at the drive-in. That's it. That's like six. Yeah, and then they both like resolve to do better separately. Separately, yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is something that I think people miss. Like I, you know, I think that like the the critique I'd always heard about the movie that I, I've always that people are always fighting with or against is that like Sandy changes herself for him, but he changes himself for her as well. And I think that goes along with the idea of their, the death of their former selves in a way that is very much Romeo and Juliet, because neither of them ask the other to do it. Mm -hmm. Like she kind of says something to Sandy kind of says something to Danny about like, go be a strong man and then we'll talk sort of thing. Um, and that's part of the reason why he gets involved in track, but she never says clean up your act and be a better man until he actually does it. And he never says, I need you to be more of a bad girl. Mm-hmm. And she just decides that that's something that she wants to do. So it's the idea of like sacrificing themselves for the other one without 
there being any expression of like how they're really feeling. Mm -hmm. It's almost in part of that miscommunication of Romeo and Juliet, where they didn't just talk about it and resolve it together, but they went and formed their own plans in order to be together. And through that miscommunication, ultimately killed their former selves. Mm. And it goes with that Romeo and Juliet miscommunication where they just miss each other and their meanings and end up dying. But instead of dying, they sing, we go together. Well, I think you guys have convinced me that Greece could be a Romeo and Juliet story and that the pieces are all there. I guess let's see if High School Musical can do the same. Gotta get ahead in the game. I believe it was Albert Einstein who once said, Wildcats, get your head in the game. (laughs) (laughs) An iconic Albert Einstein moment. So we're talking about High School Musical 1. It holds up. It's a good time. I was glad to watch it again. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't seen it probably since I was in middle school or high school. Oh, really? And I definitely still enjoyed it. I don't know if I enjoyed it in the same way as I did as a preteen or teenager, but it was an enjoyable time. Totally. It's definitely a very different experience than I had when I was in middle school also. Absolutely. I had a fun time. I got like the little like, you know, the chills and be like, ah, this brings me back. Oh, it definitely brought me back. I just, (laughs) I really enjoyed watching Zac Efron. I just... He's perfect. He's a baby in this film. He's so young. I think that's what struck me was how young everybody was in this. When I was younger, I was looking at these actors as people who were older than me. And they seemed very grown up. And now, as an adult, I'm looking at them and going, wow, they're such babies. Most of these actors have gone on to have very successful careers. I mean, most everything Disney turns out is... Uh, a lead into a very successful career, but I don't know that I can name off the top of my head a Disney production that has produced this many stars in just one cast. Totally. Right. What happened to the rest of the Cheetah Girls? Exactly. So before we get into the Romeo and Juliet of it all, compared to Greece, sort of very different vibes, but kind of a very similar story at the same time. It, it's baby's first Greece. <laughs> I think that this was what Greece would have looked like if it was set in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. It would have been less about cars and sex and would have been more focused on who's cool, what clique you're in, like what is your identity? Because I feel like those were very important things having been in... Middle school in the early 2000s. Well, um, right. I mean, the thing is that, like, Greece does not have a super coherent, like, moral necessarily. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a romp. Whereas, like, there's a message in High School Musical. It's really, like, 
trying to say something or really hitting you over the head with what it's trying to say. I mean, right. And I feel like that was something that was very true of our generation and like a little bit before us in middle school and high school is like, like we needed to like mean something. We weren't just there to enjoy life. Mm -hmm. We needed like purpose. Yeah, totally. I think also too, I mean, this is just basically if Disney did Greece. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was totally Disney-fied Greece. Well, I wonder if they knew they were making Greece. Like someone came to Disney and said, what if we did Greece, but Disney? Or if they went to them and said, what if we did Romeo and Juliet set in high school? According to Disney. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. This, so I'm looking up the history of it. And this musical, the only reason that they made this musical was because of the success of the musical episode of Even Stevens in 2002. Oh, what a great show. And then that's her Raven's subsequent musical episode. So they were like, oh, musicals are popular to these kids. Let's make a full musical film. Ah. Well, and, and also, like, I think it probably revitalized, like, musicals for our generation in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, what were the music, popular musicals being produced in 2006 before this? Not, I mean, before this was Cheetah Girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess yeah. Cheetah Girls is a musical. Uh, but was like, this before yeah. or after Hilary Duff's um, Lizzie McGuire movie? This is after after Lizzie McGuire movie, the best movie of all time, of course. So I feel like it just took movies because I feel like Cheetah Girls and Lizzie McGuire were movies with music in them, mm-hmm. whereas this was a musical, like it, a, mo- a story told through music rather than just a story with music added in. Well, but not only is it a musical, but it's a musical about like the powerful pull of wanting to be in a musical, <laughs> you know, like, like the whole premise of the story is that these two people are powerless to resist the urge to be in a musical together. It's musicalception. Right. Right. But it also like, like positions being in musicals as a thing that is, that is like cool and socially acceptable and, and fun and desirable. And, you know, so yeah. I wonder if, if there was any resurgence or interest in, uh, being in school shows or or musical theater because of this. Oh, definitely. You mean, you mean the way that there was a resurgence in the desire to be part of choir after Glee premiered? Was I there wonder- really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There were some. I- Do you remember in high school when there was like the Glee club that got started because the show was there? I don't remember this at all. Oh, oh there was totally a group of people who were like, we need our own Glee club. I'm just realizing that Glee is the perfect love child of High School Musical and Grease. I was and- just about to say, I wonder how much of the musicals that we're talking about paved the way for Grease to become a thing, or not Grease, for Glee. Uh, for Glee to become a thing. Well, and then we were realizing right before we started recording that High School Musical, the musical, the series is sort of the love child of High School Musical and Glee. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think we gave Greece a pretty big pass on whether or not it was a Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. This one is maybe a little harder. There are less uh, well-defined roles of like, who's the Tybalt or who's the friar or so on. Um, I I don't know if you're saying ego death theory applies to what happens at the end of 
of uh, High School Musical. I think the thing that's most confusing about it is that instead of like two households both alike in dignity, there's three households both alike in dignity. <laughs> there's like the nerds, which Gabriella doesn't even fully identify herself with until late in the movie. She's kind of forced into She's it. She's kind of forced into it. There's the jocks, which Trey Bolton is supremely a part of because they have a giant poster of him in the hallway. And then there's the drama kids and like the, their love is like a love, but it's also a love of drama. Like that's, well, that's, that's their sin is, is loving each other and theater. Well, and I think the drama kids are divided too, because it's like Sharpay and Ryan on one side and all of the people who love it, but aren't necessarily to the same level of, obsession as Sharpay and Ryan and there's Kelsey who's involved in it and loves it but is kind of like shunned off to the side so I feel like it's not a cohesive click. Kelsey is one of my favorite characters in the entire movie. Absolutely. <laughs> I adore Kelsey. Yes. Um, the but there, it, it's a movie where like everyone's the best like Mrs. Darvis is the best and Zeke is the best and and Ryan That's is fair. the best and <laughs> the, the background characters sometimes are more interesting than the front characters, much like Greece. Much like Greece. Mm -hmm. Although unlike Greece, you know, where Danny's kind of eh, Danny, Troy Bolton is Troy Bolton. And we love Troy Bolton. <laughs> yeah. Everybody needs a Troy Bolton mm -hmm. in their lives. He's the mm -hmm. champ in this movie. Mm -hmm. We love a straight boy trying to dance. <laughs> and like have respect for the girl that he's interested in and totally you know, kind to the underdog and just be everyone's friend and like sweet all around yeah he's very emotionally intelligent for a high schooler absolutely mm. he set the bar he did he did set the bar <laughs> i would like to personally thank zach efron for being my type in 2006 and also being my type in 2022 even though those are two very different types and i am usually not interested in men i find it interesting that you guys think this one's harder to pass as a romeo and juliet story i did not say that <laughs> okay all right that evan thinks this is harder to pass as a romeo and juliet story because we were talking and we think this actually fits the guidelines more clearly okay i hadn't thought about the three houses alike in dignity but i do think that it focuses mostly on a conflict between two houses mm -hmm. i feel like it's mostly the jocks versus i don't want to say versus the scholastic decathlon because they don't necessarily hate each other There's in the same way that the Montagues and the Capulets seem to have this like personal hatred, but they definitely have this distinct divide that they're trying to maintain, um, which causes them to not want Troy and Gabriella to be together in the same way that the Montagues and the Capulets don't want Romeo and Juliet together. There's kind of two conflicts because the adult conflict is between uh, the coach uh, and the director of the drama, right. Wilson and Mrs. Darvis. And then the kid conflict is between, is about keeping the cliques separate. Right. It's Which is like the message of the story is that like, it's okay to, to step out of your social group and try different things. Right. I feel like there's additional plot lines to the Romeo and Juliet theme. Um, but I feel like the Romeo and Juliet theme is clearly maintained. They also make references to Romeo and Juliet at one point. 
There's also a really clear balcony scene, which I applaud. Yes, very clear balcony scene. There's a very clear star-crossed lovers theme that kind of gets resolved in the end. And there's a clear feud, even if it's not necessarily between two specific Mm -hmm. parties, uh, that gets resolved in the end as well. So on those three points, I think it really hits the Romeo and Juliet storyline. And I will say, we say that there's like three houses, but if you really think about it and think of it as just the jocks versus the nerds, let's be honest, it's the nerds. Mm -hmm. Kelsey is sort of the friar in this situation, kind of being in the middle and bringing the two together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's kind of like the friar and the nurse. She plays both roles, I feel like. Well, and also like support that, that that is the main conflict. Sharpay and Ryan are definitely antagonists but in the middle of the movie when the two sides are fighting or trying to break up Gabriella and Troy they're basically not doing anything you know like like they're not involved being antagonists they only really throw in a complication right at the end how much do you want to bet that's more because Ashley Tisdale was filming Sweet Life of Zach and Cody (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciated the Sweet Life of Zach and Cody episode where they did yeah, musical and nobody everybody was like, like I don't see it when she was like everybody thinks that I look like Charpay <laughs> that was hilarious that's really good <laughs> it was like also, Charlie Chaplin losing a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest right. uh, also two roles that could not be more different you know both both broad strokes characters but good for Disney for letting her try something so different from mm-hmm. what she's already doing I think the reason that I think it's harder to make this clearly Romeo and Juliet is that not only are there like the three sides, but there are all these like uh, things that are harder to line up. You know, they meet so early in the story. There's not really a like a definite moment when they when they come together. There's kind of an exile, and also the like the character things of like like everyone shifts roles throughout the story. There's not as as clear a Tybalt really, not a clear Mercutio. I mean, those things don't really happen. Uh, where it was a little easier to identify who those people were in Greece. I will say, Greece and High School Musical have very similar plot structures with them meeting early, them having, you know, times when they're together and times when they're not and with their respective cliques and all that good stuff. It, the plot structure is very, very similar. I think that they followed the plot line more closely, even though the, the roles shifted per se. I think that that, that could be, ideally attributed to more complex character engagements within the movie of you have people shifting roles because they only had so many cast members and they kind of had to cross purposes of those particular cast members. Mm. I think the high school musical had more of the Romeo and Juliet components. That's maybe where Greece had the it followed the story arc more closely mm-hmm. and then do you think your ego death series still applies to the ending uh i don't know i think it's a bit of a stretch for this one because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily change for each other in the same way that danny and sandy did in greece mm-hmm. it's not like they gave up being who they were before they just became more complex as human beings and they added something together that they didn't have before. So I don't know if there was necessarily a like death to their former selves like Mm -hmm. Greece had. 
I think it was more a death of their masks of pretending to be who they were expected to be. They threw away who they were expected to be and um, came out as like these new people of like, this is who I'm going to be and you're going to like it and you're going to come see my shows or you're not. So like more of a death of their inhibitions rather than their egos. Mm. Breaking free of the chains that bound them. I I like that a moment ago you described it as coming out because we spent the entire movie being like, this should be gay. I agree. This feels like it could be gay. I could see it. Gabriella could be a very cute twink. (laughs) (laughs) Because some of the like conflict that Troy has with his father just feels so like, like silly, you know, just so like, like, I know my dad loves me, but what would he still love me if he knew that I sang? It, it just feels like it's trying to be a metaphor for something. Yeah, it definitely feels a little bit like a coming out sort of vibe, but yeah. it never really takes it there. No. Yeah. If musical theater was homosexuality. Well, <laughs> I mean, if I look back at all of my friends who were in theater, I'd say it's a solid percentage. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, Grace and High School Musical are both examples of Romeo and Juliet in high school, and they both are light and fluffy um, with uh, happy endings and musical numbers. Mm-hmm. Do you think it'd be possible to tell the Romeo and Juliet story in high school with the tragic ending? Fair. Yeah. Oh, also, like Dead Poet Society, maybe. Is Dead Poet Society a Romeo and Juliet? I think there's like a Romeo and Juliet subplot going on in Dead Poet Society. Okay. It's like not the main thing. It just like happens subtly. I think that if you approached it in a, a very realistic way, if we look at the mental health of high school students a lot of the time when they are under pressure and feeling... um unheard and unloved i think you would be able to tell it accurately with a tragic ending i don't think it would do well in the box office though right (laughs) right no this movie is just for us i i think that especially with i think if it was retold now in uh post-pandemic world where there's lots of limitations on the mental health support especially for young people um, and the rampant school shootings I think that it's absolutely possible that you could tell an accurate story now that incorporates the tragic ending I don't think it would be fun to watch and I think it would kind of be a little on the nose for a lot of people but I think you could absolutely do that. I think the thing that does often work about setting Shakespeare's plays in high school, though, is that like the characters are often these overdramatic idiots, especially mm-hmm. in Romeo and Juliet. And high schoolers are overdramatic idiots. Are overdramatic idiots? Well, and the, you know, I think the thing that like educators always say about high schoolers, people who teach high school, they're always like, you know, puppy love is real to puppies, right? Like, like when high schoolers are going through things like that it's 
the biggest thing that's ever happened to them, the most intense way they've ever felt about something or someone or, you know, and, and I think that like that feeling would make, uh, makes high school musical in Greece work certainly. And I think you could use that to tell this, to tell the more dramatic version of the story, but for who, right? Yeah. For, for other high schoolers who can relate as, as someone who works with school age children daily, I can confirm that as soon as kindergarten hits all the way up until they graduate high school and possibly past that, everything is the biggest thing mm -hmm. ever. Hmm. And there is, there is just so many different paths that they could take, but their, their most likely path is the most dramatic one. Mm -hmm. Which is very Mrs. Darmus. I always feel like she's just in it for whatever, whatever option is most dramatic. I spent half the movie being like, Whose side is she on? And it's like, I think she just wants the most dramatic possible thing to happen. Mm -hmm. She's on the side of the plot. Right, <laughs> exactly. Like All the world's a stage to her. Yeah, honestly. For her musicale. <laughs> Can we talk about that musicale? Wait a minute. Twinkle Town? Oh my God. The two mini who are either friends or lovers, depending on who's playing them. And they have a camel, but also a tree that would not a deciduous survive, tree. A deciduous tree that would not survive well in the desert, and also a full, like, crescent moon. And a city backdrop. And a city backdrop. Yeah, like, what is this play about? Kelsey. Kelsey. <laughs> I have some questions for Kelsey. Is it, like, a jukebox musical where she wrote a bunch of songs and then they just kind of created a plot to fit it? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I mean, we have to admit, though, that Kelsey is, like, a wunderkind, like, oh yeah, because Sharpay Sharpay has this line where she's like, "I've been the lead in the last seventeen school productions." Which, first of all, that math makes her the lead pretty young, right? Yeah. Depending on how many shows they do a year and how many shows her middle school did a year. Well, Taylor says she's had a lead role since kindergarten, right? Yeah, and then after that, she says that she goes. She's talking to Kelsey, and she goes, "And how many how many times have your arrangements of the songs been picked?" And she's like, "None." So, which means that. Was Kelsey writing original music in kindergarten? I don't know if she's necessarily doing a one-for-one -one comparison. I think that she's just making a point of like, I've been doing this forever and had all of this success. What success have you had? I don't think it's supposed to be a like one-for-one. -one. They were up against each other since kindergarten. Mm -hmm. But Kelsey is clearly talented to be a composer in high school who is being published in this way mm -hmm. so who knows how long she has been doing this maybe she has been doing it for quite a long time so closing thoughts about high school musical is good it's a classic <laughs> it's a classic i mean it's so delightful to watch um both of these films are, are really like pleasant high school musical especially just feels like so easy to uh, fall back into. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I feel like they're both movies that I enjoyed, but I forgot how much I enjoyed them until re-watching them recently. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely evolved the way that I enjoy them since watching them the first time. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but it's it's nice to come back and be like, 
this can just be fun, right? This doesn't have yeah. to be serious. They don't have to die, which is a nice break for us. <laughs> right. I feel like I have no like moral dilemmas that I'm parsing out in watching these movies. I don't totally. have to like invest a lot of emotional energy in them. They're just nice stories. Right. They're both just like, maybe uh, maybe clicks are bad. Maybe try things that aren't in your in-group. And then mm -hmm. I'm sort of like, yeah, sure. That seems fine. They're just both camp. They are both camp. And I like camp. Yeah. It's just a simple story of boy meets girl. Boy is not allowed to be with girl. Girl and boy sneak off together and break all high school traditions. The end. Well, we have a another film we'll be watching in two weeks that will no doubt follow that same formula. But in the first, thank you for joining us for this episode of If the Shoe Fits Starcrossed. Thank you for having us. It was a delight. Thank you very much. Yes. You're very welcome. Uh, and thank you all for listening. You can join us again in two weeks' time when we'll be watching the cinema classic, Nomeo and Juliet. We're bad to the gnome. Is that really the tagline for the movie? I wish it were. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.